One of the duties I believe I have as your pastor is to preach and to pray in such a way that when your calamity comes, you won't curse God. And even more, I think, to preach and to pray in such a way that when your calamity comes, you will, in fact, worship God and bless Him in it. And therefore, for the next five weeks, we're going to try to understand the message of the book of Job and be changed by it. Virtually everybody in this room will sooner or later experience a bitter calamity. And you can mark it down ahead of time. When it comes, it will seem absurd and undeserved and meaningless. And you will cry out, why? A hundred times. That's why the book of Job is so relevant, because Job's suffering seems to come out of nowhere and have no connection to his character. His story, I think, is recorded for us in Scripture because the Lord wants to use it to equip us to endure our calamities and not just endure them with a stiff upper lip like the Stoics, but to worship in them and to bless God in them. Today we're going to look at the first section in the book, which extends through chapter 2, verse 10. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job, which comes right before Psalms in the middle there. We're only going to spend five weeks on this big book, but I think we can learn the message of the book in five weeks. We can't begin to exhaust it with 42 chapters, having spent 20 weeks on First John with its five chapters. But we can learn the message. And if we do, we'll be changed. Verse 1 of chapter 1 introduces the man Job and his character. He was a blameless man, it says, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In other words, if suffering is intended as a punishment for evil, he's not a very good candidate for calamity. He is a good man. He turns away from evil because he fears God. He pursues the right. He avoids the wrong. His reputation is blameless. His reverence for God governs all he does. Then, in verses 2 to 3, we see how the Lord rewards a righteous man. The promises in Scripture that the Lord is good to the righteous are not without meaning. He was extraordinarily blessed. He had seven sons, it says, and he had three daughters. He had huge numbers of sheep and camels and oxen and asses and many servants. It says he was the greatest of all the people of the East. His righteousness had not gone unnoticed by his Father in Heaven. Then verses 4 and 5 are a little, a little snapshot 
out of his life, I think, meant to illustrate his reverence for God and his love for his family. It says that his family used to get together now and then under the roof of one of the brothers to have a feast. And the next morning, Job would always get up and give a sacrifice for each of his children, lest they had sinned and cursed God the night before. Now, I think what that is intended to show us is two things. He was extraordinarily jealous for the name of God. If, perchance, any of his children had taken the name of God in vain at a party the night before, he wants to cover that before God. And if, perchance, any of his children is in jeopardy of falling away from the Lord, he wants to plead to the Lord with a sacrifice for them. So he reverences God and he loves his children. A little snapshot out of this godly man's life of how he lived for the sake of God and his family. And then the calamity came. Drop down to verses 13 following. It was one of those feast days when all of his ten children were gathered together in the home of the oldest brother. And a series of messengers comes on one afternoon to Job. Verses 14 and 15. A messenger comes to Job and tells him that the Sabaeans, the enemies, had attacked and stolen all of his oxen and all of his asses and killed all the servants except him, and he had escaped to come tell the tragedy. Verse 16, another messenger arrives shortly and says that fire fell from heaven, the fire of God, probably lightning and a brush fire or a forest fire, and had engulfed all the sheep and killed all the servants, and he alone had escaped to come tell him. Verse 17, another messenger comes and says that the Chaldeans has raided, had raided the camel herd and taken away all the camels and killed all the servants. And finally, a servant comes and says that all ten of his children were crushed to death when a tornado hit their house and made the whole thing collapse. So, all of Job's prosperity is gone And his children are gone in one afternoon. And we ask, what in the world is going on here to this godly man? Now, to see what's going on here, you can't look in the world. You'll never get an answer to those kinds of questions in the world. So you shouldn't ask merely, what in the world is going on? The writer to this, of this letter, of this book, gave us a glimpse into heaven. That's where you can find out what's going on in verses 6 through 12. So let's look at what's going on in heaven. There's a meeting between God and Satan. And in verse 7, Satan says that he spends his time going to and fro in the earth. And, and then God puts on display his trophy. That he delights in very much, namely Job. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? That's a very strange thing for God to do. It's, it's as though a thief should meet the owner of a jewelry store in the middle of the night at the back of the store. And the owner says, what are you doing here? 
And he says, oh, I'm just walking around in your store, going to and fro. And the owner should say, oh, well, did you see the biggest diamond there on the front of the, front of the counter on display? It's flawless. It's worth a million dollars. This is very strange of God. Now, I rule out the possibility that God is stupid. And I rule out the possibility that God is a bumbler. And I'm left with one answer. God is setting Job up. God is manifestly proud of Job because of the grace in his life. But Satan is not impressed. And in verse 9, Satan insinuates that Job is not such a great specimen of reverence after all. Does Job fear God for naught? In other words, Satan says, the only reason he fears you is because you've given him so many possessions and such a nice family. Who wouldn't? like God and fear God if God just treats him with wealth and kindred. You take those things away, verse 11, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And now God could have said to Satan, I don't need to prove anything to you. I know the heart of my servant Job to hell with you and your applications or your accusations. I think God says that to Satan every day. But not all the time. He could have done it, but he didn't do it in this case. Instead, God chooses to get an open victory over Satan. A victory that will display that in the heart of Job, God is of paramount value. Not things, not family, but God. So in verse 12, God says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only upon himself do not put forth your hand. And then come the calamities that we saw. Job loses his wealth. He loses his children. And we ask, what on earth is happening? And the answer is, something of immense heavenly importance is happening. God is in the process of demonstrating to the heavenly hosts and to anybody else who has an ear to hear and an eye to see that he himself, and not anything Job possesses, is of infinite value to Job. Job's reverence is not mercenary, and the great victory is recorded in verses 20 to 21. Then Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed, 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 well spoken of, cherished, delighted in, be the name of the Lord. Satan was wrong. Job did not curse God. 
when his wealth and his children were taken away, he worshipped God. He blessed God. And so the superior worth of God was revealed, was manifested for all to see. But just as Job was recovering from the shock of losing his wealth and his children, he looks down at his hands. And he feels on his back and his neck and his face strange boils starting to emerge. It says in verse 7 and 8, He was afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a a broken piece of pottery to scrape and itch and scratch himself as he sat in the ashes. Chapter 7, verse 5, gives us a more vivid description of this disease. It says that these were boil-like sores that opened and ran with pus and then got clogged with dirt and infested with worms. This is not a case of measles. This is a horrid thing. This is a horrid disease. Is this the reward of the reverence of Job? What in the world? is going on here. And again, the writer says, you'll never find out in the world. And he gives us another glimpse into heaven. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Again, God puts his trophy, Job, on display before Satan and says, have you considered, verse 3, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without a cause. And again, Satan challenges the authenticity of Job's reverence. He says, Job is only reverent because you preserve his health, his body. Verse 4, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give in exchange for his life. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So again, the worth of God is challenged. Is God in himself what Job values, or is it his health that God gives that keeps him fearing God? Does he love God or does he love the gifts of God? Job has shown that he loves God more than he loves his family and more than he loves his possessions. But what about his health? Verse 6, God says to Satan, Behold, he is in your power only spares life. In other words, behind these apparently absurd experiences of suffering, there is something going on in heaven of immense importance. There are transactions that are of universal significance. 
When Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev meet, Lord willing, in November in Geneva, the whole world will focus its attention on those two men because they know that when two men of such stature confer, something of immense importance is at stake. Well, brothers and sisters, when God Almighty confers with Satan, more is at stake. Do you believe that whether or not you reverence God in your calamity is a greater issue than any of the transactions in the White House or the Kremlin? I do. The most important events in the world are whether the children of God reverence God in suffering. When God chooses to confer with his arch enemy in the halls of heaven, more is at stake than will be at stake in Geneva. The demonstration of the worth of God in the faith and reverence of his people is the most important matter in the world. But when Job's health fails, it proves too much for his wife. She had endured with him the loss of her children and all the wealth of her family. I'm not as hard on her as I used to be. I used to get real mad at Job's wife. But pick, put yourself in her shoes for a moment. She had just lost ten children. She had lost all the earthly security of her possessions. And in that culture... If she loses her husband, she has nothing. No children, no possessions, no husband. And she's losing him before her eyes in a most agonizing way. And she says, losing her faith, at least for the moment, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Verse 9. Curse God and die. Now, that must have made Satan smile. I can see him in the throne room. Strike one. And it must have cut right to the heart of her husband, Job, that this burden, too, would be added to his suffering. Then comes the shattering victory of Job. Verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. I, I like that. I, I think that's kind of Job. He could have said, if it were true, that's the way you always talk. He didn't say that because I don't think it's true. There's not a word about her opposition to the death of her children. Not a word. She was with Job in faith. And so when she speaks, he says, that's not the way you talk. That's the way foolish women talk. And I, I pray, I don't know what happened. We don't ever hear another word from her. She is not rebuked in the last chapter where all his other friends are rebuked. 
So perhaps that one word and then the faith of her husband did it. And she snapped back. We could hope that. But here's the key sentence of the victory. Verse 10. He says to her, Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? That is astonishing. Comforts, wife, and calamities come from the hand of God. And should it not be so? I picture Satan in heaven now, surrounded by 10,000 angels waiting this response. He's just got his wife, he thinks. And then comes the response. And 20,000 arms, angelic arms, go into the sky. And 10,000 voices say, Worthy! Worthy is the God of Job in the heart of Job. And you know what Satan does? He's gone. To hell with Job. Or to hell with Satan and his accusations. If you want to know how to resist the evil one, Job shows you how. Trust God in your affliction. Bless God. Worship God. Now let's stand back and draw out from this story four theological truths to give fiber and root to our faith. And then three personal implications. First, Truth, Satan's aim is to destroy our joy in God. He uses two weapons, pain and pleasure. He failed in pleasure. You see, Job prospered for a long time. And Satan couldn't get him. And so he tried pain. And he couldn't get him. But what's clear here is what he's after. Satan is after your joy in God. Pleasure is intended to show you that God is superfluous, an unnecessary ingredient in pleasure. You can get enough without him. Pain is intended to show you that he is hostile and he is powerless to help you. And who delights in a God like that? So pleasure and pain are his two weapons in your life and he is after your delight and he wants to put family. He wants to put possessions and he wants to put health in the place of God. And oh, how he succeeds among the people of God as well as among the world. First truth, Satan's aim is to destroy our joy in God and to make something else our treasure rather than God. Second, God aims to magnify His worth in the lives of His people. God aims to magnify His worth in the lives of His people. The great aim of creation and redemption is to preserve and display the worth of God's glory. The way He does this is by redeeming a people who love and cleave to and cherish God more than they love and cleave to and cherish Things and kindred and this mortal life also. And the mirror 
that God has chosen in the world, the mirror that he has chosen to reflect his glory to other people is the indestructible delight of his saints. That's the mirror of the glory of God. If it is indestructible in tribulation, God's worth shines through the diamond of your faith. Third, God grants to Satan limited power to cause pain. God grants to Satan limited power to cause pain. Chapter 1, verse 12, God says, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only upon himself do not put forth your hand. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, Behold, he is in your power, Satan, only spare his life. In other words, God says you can have this much, no more. Now, the lesson from that is Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. God is not in heaven wringing his hands in frustration at how much havoc Satan can wreak in the world. Satan may be a lion prowling around seeking saints to devour, but he is on a leash. And God can rein him in or give him slack according to his sovereign purposes. And fourth, Satan's work is ultimately God's work. Satan's work is ultimately God's work. Did you notice in the two heavenly scenes that first God hands over Job to Satan? He's in your power. But when Satan takes that power and uses it to destroy his oxen, his camels, his sheep, his asses, and all of his servants, and his ten children. What does Job say? Chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave, and Satan has taken away. It's not what he says. Now, I want to stress this because there is an evangelical piety that's very different from Job's today that says just that. Good things from God, bad things from Satan... And God is frustrated. Oh, he doesn't want you to get sick. Oh, he doesn't want you to lose your spouse. Oh, he doesn't want you to lose your job. Poor God. Great Satan. Job did not share that piety. His piety is deeper. It's fuller. It's stronger. It's mightier. He says, The Lord gave. The Lord blew the house down. The Lord sent the fire from heaven. The Lord let the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans come. Blessed, blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord, my sovereign King. Similarly, in the second heavenly scene, chapter 2, verse 6, God says to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Do with him as you like, only spare his life. And then even more pointedly, verse 7, it says, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with loathsome sores. Who afflicted Job with loathsome sores? 
Verse 10. Job says to his wife, Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? You see, the root of Job's piety is to go behind Satan and to reach all the way up to the sovereignty of God and say, God reigns. Satan may have been the nearer cause, but ultimately it was from God. Now, suppose somebody were to say, well, wait a minute, you're interpreting this all wrong. Satan, or Job, did not see into heaven. He didn't know what was going on. If he had seen what God had said, namely, I give power to Satan to do this, he wouldn't have attributed that to God. Now, the writer of this book is privy to that inclination in our hearts to believe that way. And therefore, he says very plainly in verse 22 of chapter 1, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It is not sin to say that what Satan did, God ultimately did. Notice chapter 2, verse 10, at the end. Again, a warning from the inspired writer, lest we misinterpret, lest we twist Job's words and say he shouldn't have said this. The writer says, in all this, Job did not sin. With his lips. It is not sin to say that a sickness that Satan causes is from the Lord. I believe it is sin to say the opposite. I believe it is a crying down and a twisting and a distortion and a withholding of the rights of the sovereign God to give Satan. Autonomy. God reigns in the piety of Job. And this leads us to three closing personal implications. First, let us join Job. Let us join Job's piety here and affirm with all our hearts the absolute sovereignty of God. Let's say with the psalmist, God is in the heavens He does whatever He pleases. Let's say with the prophet Daniel, He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say, What doest thou? Let us make the absolute sovereignty of God the rock on which we stand in the midst of calamity. When everything was falling apart around Job and all of his possessions and all of his children and then all of his health was going right down the tubes, he only had one thing left and he affirmed it with all his heart. Shall evil befall a city and the Lord has not done it? God reigns. Satan is a lackey. And it was his rock. And it can be your rock in the day of your calamity.
Second implication, when your calamity comes, let your tears flow freely. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. When it came, it says, Job rose, rent his robe, shaved his head bald and fell on his face. The sobs of grief and pain are not the sign of unbelief. Job knows nothing of a flippant, insensitive, superficial, praise God anyhow, response to suffering. The magnificence of his worship was that it was in grief, not instead of grief. And I do not want anybody to leave this room today saying, oh my goodness, when I get sick and get in the hospital and the pastor comes visit me, I'm going to have to really keep a stiff upper lip because he's told me that I'm supposed to believe in the sovereignty of God in this affair. Well, you better be weeping when you lose your spouse and your child. You better let those tears flow if you're alive and not a rock. And you can believe I will not preach to you in that hour. I am preaching this morning so that we can look into each other's eyes at that moment and not have to say one word. And we won't. We will simply hold each other. Okay? Is that clear? Finally... Let us trust the goodness of God and let Him be your treasure and let Him be your joy. When your calamity comes, and believe me, it's going to come, it's going to seem absurd, it's going to seem undeserved, it's going to seem meaningless, you're going to cry out, why? When it comes, my prayer is that you will affirm the absolute sovereignty of God. And that you will let the tears flow freely. Like one person did in my office after the first service. And that you will trust God's goodness. Inscrutable as it may seem in any given tragedy. Trust His goodness and let God be your treasure and your joy. Amen. You remember last summer when we studied the book of Ruth for four weeks, we had a theme hymn. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Well, we have another theme hymn for this five-week series. It's printed on this little enclosure in your bulletin, If Thou But Suffer God to Guide Thee. You know, if you've been around long enough, this is one of my favorite hymns. I've told Noel it's going to be sung at my funeral. I'll get up out of the coffin and shout a protest. <laughs> it is a hymn of great hope, great solace. It is one of those deep and powerful hymns that the church ought to give thanks to God for, written by Georg Neumark, 1641, a great Lutheran German composer. And I want us to sing three verses of it this morning. Number one, number two. Number five, and we'll be weaving this through our services through the next five weeks. Take this home, tape it up on your mirror or put it in your Bible and meditate on this great 
poem. Shall we stand and sing? Almighty God, if there is anyone in this room who yet after this worship service has set more store, more affection, more love, more cherishing, more hope and more joy on things or family or health or career, grant that before this day is over, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they will be stricken with conviction in their soul. And that before the sun goes down and perhaps even around the Lord's table tonight, there might be a repentance. There might be a closing with Christ. There might be a renewal of the Spirit. And you might become their treasure and their joy. To whom belong glory and honor and majesty and absolute sovereignty both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen.